Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stamwell Major. In this episode, we're continuing Alan Colas's Around the World Alone, and we're on chapter two. Having weighed the risks and made a decision, I now had to do everything I could to ensure my success, but it was not simply a question of doing what I had decided to do. If I were going to tackle the three capes alone aboard a multi-hull, there was much work to be done. I would have to cape Horneyes Penduic 4. This was especially necessary because after her around-the-world voyage and the transatlantic, the boat was celebrating her 50th anniversary, in thousands of miles, that is. So, after Newport, there was a lot of hard work ahead. I had to transform the transatlantic racer into a craft capable of sailing safely through dangerous seas, of surviving the gigantic waves of the 40th and 50th latitudes. In a word, I had to turn Penduic 4 into a vessel worthy of the Great Capes. First, I had to increase the boat's security by incorporating a number of modifications because there were specific problems to face in the upper latitudes. Books, narratives and experience all were agreed in emphasising the height of the waves at Cape Horn, waves that roll unbroken except by the Cape itself and the threshold of the Drake Strait separating Tierra del Fuego from the Antarctic continent. The danger seemed to be that the giant waves in the Roaring Forties and their cousins in the Fifties would catch the bow in such a way as to raise the stern and capsize the boat stern over bow. Moreover, since I had decided to complicate things by competing with the great clippers of the past at a distance of a century, I had to increase Penduic 4's potential for speed. Once those things were taken care of, I hoped to be able to do something to humanise the living quarters of the boat. After all, I was going to spend several months there. Having established the broad outlines of what I was going to do, and having covered a respectable number of pages with lists of things to do or buy or to search for, I put on my best necktie and headed for Paris. After a long winter and a late spring, things began to look hopeful. I was finally able to put together what I needed from a technical as well as from a financial standpoint. The victory at Newport, welcome as it was, had done little to assure my financial future. It had been enough, with a bit of stretching here and there, to wipe out past debts, or as accountants say, to liquidate my liabilities. There is much to remember from that period of intense preparation, a wealth of labour and generosity from which I was to benefit, the work done over and over again until the result was perfection, with no thought to the amount of time involved. Such care and diligence could not be repaid by mere money. I shall keep with me forever the memory of the young woman who sewed my storm sail, the sail that we use only when no other sail will hold in the wind while we must still fight against the storm. The image in my mind is of this girl at the Tonnerre Sailmakers in Lorient, her face serious, her body bent over the work upon which, after all, my fate might depend. She was the daughter, granddaughter and great-granddaughter of fishermen. Into my sail she was sowing her heritage. Her wages had little to do with it. Whether she sowed well or poorly, her pay at the end of the month would be the same. She was sewing into my sail her very being, stitch by stitch. It was her respect for the sea, or perhaps the ancient longing, each restless day of wives, mothers and daughters, to see the sailor come home from the sea, that she sewed into my sail. A thousand times, on a thousand different occasions, I bore witness to the goodwill, 
care and skill of everyone involved in my preparations. There was a welder who used his torch with a diligence that went beyond mere skill. He worked, so to speak, with his conscience, with the constant thought in his mind that a less than perfect seam might be the cause of a leak and perhaps of a tragedy. There were all the technicians who gave me the benefit of their expertise, the businessmen and the industrialists who gave me the use of their equipment, the organizations and manufacturers who gave me their patronage and enthusiasm, as if their sole aim were to help a young man who, in the final analysis, despite his carefully worded proposals, really had nothing to offer beyond an act of faith. It might be useful here to say a word or two about the concept of commercial sponsorship. Obviously, that term does not refer to traditional advertising campaigns in which a manufacturer buys space in newspapers or time on the radio or television and launches a campaign whose impact in the marketplace can be determined with a degree of precision. Selling a product by such campaigns is the classic expression of the advertising concept. It progresses by predictable stages and with luck it accomplishes its specific aim. In other words, the traditional advertising campaign represents an investment on which the sponsor is assured, within reason, of a return. It was not at all the same with the proposals of Alain Collas. It was a different kind of game, one in which the risks involved seemed greater than the possible return or any sponsor's investment. For example, I had financial agreements with RTL, Radio Television Luxembourg, and with Ricard, a French liqueur producer, for broadcasting rights. They knew, and I knew, that there would certainly be times during the voyage when radio contact would be impractical or impossible. It was obvious to me that, in such cases, the motivation of my sponsors was primarily to give me as much help as they could, no matter what happened. It may have been a calculated risk on their part, but a risk calculated to give me the benefit of every doubt. It may have been Ricard's purpose to burnish their public image, for which they could have picked any one of a thousand other ways. Furthermore, no one ever asked me to wear a yellow t-shirt with Ricard's name or to request a glass of its product upon arriving at the finish line. When all is said and done, my endeavour was made possible by men who had made up their minds to believe in an appealing project one whose attraction lay perhaps in the idealism that removed it from the realm of the ordinary, and they had reached that decision in the full knowledge that they would have a lot of explaining to do to their boards of directors if, for any reason, I was unable to live up to my commitments. After all, there was nothing to guarantee that, once I was at sea, I would be willing or able to spend an hour or two a day on the radio, and there was nothing to keep me from saying that the radio was out of order if I wanted to take a nap. Patrick Ricard, nonetheless, in conjunction with RTL, financed my truly remarkable radio equipment. This arrangement was based on a three-party agreement from which each of us would derive well-weighed advantages. This term is deliberate. The equipment weighed almost 2,000 pounds. I, as a navigator, would have increased security. RTL would have the exclusive and, we hoped, exciting news for its audience. And Ricard would gain stature as a public benefactor and sponsor of the adventure. Thanks to this sponsorship and to Credit Agricole, which was providing additional funds for repairs and renovation of the boat, Penduic 4 was turned over to the Perrier shipyards in Lorient for the necessary work. Perrier, despite its impossible schedule, was the proper company to do what had to be done. After all, the boat had been built by Perrier in 1968. It seemed the fitting place to take care of five years' wear and tear.
First, a gigantic crane plucked the trimaran from the water. It had been a rather singular sight in the fishing port, and raised it into the air like a feather, finally depositing it gently on blocks at the far end of the yard, almost at the threshold of the tonnerre sailmakers, who, of course, would also have a great deal to do with the boat's preparation. From that time on, members of the Colas clan, battalions of them, descended upon the shipyard, while material and equipment of various kinds arrived in an apparently endless torrent. Soon, Penduic IV was little more than an aluminum carcass, stripped of all her instruments, equipment and rigging. Dick, the tonnerre watchdog, was delighted to have company on weekends and holidays, but I'm not sure that I can say the same for the other inhabitants of the area. Andre Allegri, the architect who had designed Penduic IV, was called back from vacation in order to give his opinion, in situ, of the projected modifications. We quickly found that we were in agreement on the shape and the angle of the deflectors with which the stems would be equipped, and a few rather hair-raising events in past voyages having to do with the effect of heavy seas on the stern of the boat had given me some ideas which, to my satisfaction, coincided with those of André himself, who was very well versed in the latest developments in his profession. These deflectors, shaped like moustaches, were intended to increase the buoyancy so as to raise the boat in the water, and thus, we hoped, keep it from being capsized when we encountered the giant waves of Cape Horn. The stem, streamlined to a more open angle, would break the force of the wave like the handguard of a sword. It was equally easy in principle and in practice for us to work out a fourth hull pontoon ensemble that enveloped the forward tube. This tube itself was an addition to the original structure that had been welded amidships so as to distribute the strain when sailing against both the wind and the sea. While we were at it, we also reduced the freeboard of the pontoons, where the impact of seawater not only created a beautiful spray effect, but also acted as a break, particularly in a crosswind. What were the chief dangers involved in a solo voyage around the world? The first among them, of course, was the danger of being washed overboard. I knew the precautions to be taken, which consisted principally in keeping my eyes open and always being careful to have my harness hooked up. As far as the risk of collision was concerned, it would become less and less as the course I followed deviated from the more travelled shipping lanes. The remaining dangers were those of being dismasted and of capsizing. With respect to the former, I had stayed the two masts independently so that even if I lost one of them, it was unlikely that the other would also be lost. At this point in my preparations, however, my principal protection in case of capsizing lay essentially in the radio equipment that I would have aboard. There was a distress radio boy... All I would have to do was extend the antenna and press a button, and thereafter the radio would automatically send out an SOS, which, with any luck, would be picked up by an aircraft or ships within range. There was also an emergency transmitter with rabbit ear antennas and a telescopic antenna which, if its batteries were wet, could be activated manually by turning a handle. The batteries, incidentally, were designed to work even if the boat were upside down. This transmitter, enclosed in a waterproof casing, is mandatory equipment on all merchant ships. Once activated, it sends out distress signals on international MHF frequency 2182, alerting all cargo ships on that open band. This, of course, is in addition to the automatic SOS signals. I would have enough food aboard so that if my boat did capsize, it would become a kind of life raft that I would simply allow to drift until it reached either land or a shipping lane, that is, if my distress signals went unanswered. 
To all this equipment must be added the construction of two waterproof compartments within the centre hull. One of these, located after the boarding compartment, served to isolate the forward part of the hull. The other was to the right of the stairwell and had a waterproof door opening into the cockpit, the drainage capability of which was increased tenfold. There are many other things as well, the use of a weatherboard on the forward hatch, the rebuilding and strengthening of the pulpits, the use of double lifelines, the installation of new tanks for modification of the rigging, of tracks for the tallboy staysail and the mizzenmast jib of the centreboard. There was the steering system to modify and a steering post to install under a reinforced plexiglass dome. Actually, the installation of a sheltered steering post makes a great deal of sense from the standpoint of safety. In rough seas, when the waves are washing over the decks and the boat is pitching and tossing, a helmsman under a dome has a much greater chance of pulling through than one exposed to the elements, to say nothing of the matter of comfort. There were, of course, a thousand other things. The installation of the new masts of various keelsons, etc., etc. Fortunately, there was no lack of experienced personnel at Lorient. The people at Perrier were not a great deal of help since a series of tests for waterproofing had revealed a number of serious weaknesses in the pontoons. We had to make large openings in the sides of the pontoons to make adjustments in the bracing, but most important, we had to redo the ten lockers which, until the tests, we had assumed to be waterproof. These tests were, so to speak, my trump card in the preparation for my Cape Horn adventure. The French Atomic Energy Commission, of all people, had sent a team of specialists headed by Roger Peclier, an engineer, to inspect the boat's aluminum struts and detect the slightest degree of porousness, weakness and metal fatigue. The project also served the commission as a showcase for the techniques perfected by the safety and maintenance divisions of their installations. The tests themselves were quite interesting. First, the various watertight compartments were emptied of air, one by one, and the air was replaced by nitrogen. If there was the tiniest crack or the smallest pit of corrosion through which the nitrogen leaked out of the compartment, the loss registered on a canary yellow gauge installed on the exterior of the compartment. Ultrasonic and X-ray techniques were also used. The X-ray test revealed, among other things, a dangerous lack of depth in the welding on one of the joints, and the nitrogen tests, in addition to numerous leaks in the pontoons, turned up about 20 corrosion pits which had penetrated the bottom and some leakage at the bottom of a sump, this particular discovery was something of a relief, since for the preceding two or three years I had had to pump out the sump every week. Let me illustrate the value of the repairs and improvements that were made as a result of these tests. I am sailing, say, off the coast of Portugal. There is a strong wind and I am sailing close hauled. Suddenly, the forward seam of each pontoon cracks open. What do I do? Must I put into port? Not at all. Since, now that the compartments are really watertight, there is no way for the water to flood them. I'll have to take it easy, but I'll be able to go on, thanks to the gentlemen from the Atomic Energy Commission and their instruments. An additional task was to try to reduce the weight of the entire structure of the trimaran as much as possible. This lightening of the structural parts had to be done mostly by cutting holes in the sides to reach the enclosed parts, and the purpose of this was to counter the considerable weight of the new security equipment, the radios, etc., that was installed. Otherwise, the speed of the boat would be reduced. In the midst of all these undertakings, a vessel that had just gone around the world by way of the Capes and through the latitudes of the 40s docked at Lorient. Loic Fougeron, master of Captain Brown, had known hard times on his trip. 
and his weather-beaten face and gnarled hands bore eloquent witness to his experience of the sea. There was an immediate affinity between the sailor who had just rounded the cape and the one who was about to round it. His ship was crammed with clever devices which he explained as I listened in fascination. Finally, he undertook a safety inspection of the trimaran. He was favourably impressed by the deflectors, but I could see that something about the boat was bothering him, and he seemed somewhat relieved when I showed him the opening that had been made in the hull for the speedometer. Ah, he commented, you'll be able to use that for fresh air and for your antenna in case you capsize. But since you're still working on the boat, why don't you simply make a hatch in the bottom? You can hold it shut with wing nuts. Loic was right, of course. The centre section of the boat had been made into a watertight living, steering and storage area in which I would keep food, water, distress radio boys, batteries and my main transmitter, which was capable of working upside down. I'd even designed a system of inflatable balloons for atop the masts, but there was no escape hatch. I had one built. If the boat capsized, all I would have to do would be to turn a few wing nuts and I would have a supply of fresh air in my compartment. Then I could calmly extend my radio antenna and send out my distress signals. There were lists of things to be done, and lists and lists. Little by little, as the months passed, the work progressed. But the funny thing about lists is that they never grow shorter. As you cross off things at the top, you add more at the bottom. The exterior of the boat had to be treated, and both exterior and interior had to be painted. The living quarters had to be insulated and planked with wood. There were new masts by Albert Coudevet to be installed. The mizzen had to have a new panel added. The mainmast had to be raised by about five feet, and thus the square footage of the sail was increased, and equipped for eight halyards, two lifts, two lines for ship's bells, and the Sama rigging. Then, of course, there was the elaborate electrical installation to be undertaken, and the navigation aids, enough for a small cargo ship, excepting only the radar which had been banished because of the weight. I am neither Tarzan nor Superman, and I believe in supplementing muscles by such things as meteorological charts, depth sounders, pulleys, etc. The lists went on and on. Generators, fuel tanks, heating systems, appliances, the refinishing of the upper part of the hull, the speed regulator, the electronic equipment, the steering mechanism with its various options, a tiller in the cockpit and a wheel in the cabin, automatic pilot, manual and electric steering. There were hundreds of hours to be spent working with the people responsible for all these things and with various friends who had come to lend me a hand for a weekend and had ended up staying a month. Like Georges Cramabon, concealing a genius for mechanics behind a flaming red beard and an air of utter detachment. President de Maurras, with his unquenchable enthusiasm for multi-hulled vessels, he was at the head of the association of owners of such boats. Albert, Joel, Patrick, Christian, Claude, little Louis all caught up in the frantic pace of the work. Jeff, my kid brother, who had already been so involved in preparations for the transatlantic, but who now, nonetheless, gave up his vacation to help ready the boat for the Cape Horn adventure. We all shared the feeling that we were racing against the clock in a madhouse of roaring compressors, blinding flashes of light from the welding equipment, clouds of dust from the dock, torrents of rain from the heavens, and the uproar from the fish auctions. Yet, throughout it all, there was a sense of warm camaraderie, a companionability that gave new meaning to the undertaking. I must add that, beyond the technical preparations for the voyage, I also made certain, let us say, human preparations. It was not that I did not have absolute confidence in modern technology. Rather, it was more that if a man is going to fight against the elements, he has a much better chance of winning, 
if he is in full possession of his physical and moral strength. What I wanted to do, therefore, was humanise the boat for those endless days when I would be alone on the sea. I felt that I would need some comfort if I was to bear the solitude, to say nothing of the danger, with patience and confidence. The human heart, if it is to remain firm, needs an occasional touch of tender, loving care. I went over every aspect of my existence on the boat during the voyage, concentrating particularly on the comfort and attractiveness of the living quarters, the equipment in the galley, and the food to be taken. I also gave much consideration to medical supplies and pharmaceutical items necessary for my physical well-being, to the means of distracting and entertaining myself during the months of solitude, and, last but not least, to the means of protecting myself against the bitter cold I knew I would encounter. Naturally, no one can think of everything, and I was aware that it would only be at the end of the voyage that I would be in a position to draw up a definitive account of what is really needed in a galley, in radio equipment, and in each of the other areas in which I was trying to foresee everything possible to tip the odds in my favour. Hence, the innumerable treks between Lorient and Paris for supplies and equipment, the trips by air, with necktie in my pocket and a clean shirt on a coat hanger fluttering behind me like a banner, the endless hours in automobiles, the nights on the train, until finally it was all done, or at least as much of it as could be done. By the end of August, Manoreva was ready for launching. Manoreva. The name has the sound of Tahitian guitars. In the lilting language of the Polynesians, Manoreva means bird of passage. In every boat that I had ever imagined, in every sketch of my dreamboat, the name Manoreva had appeared on the bow. Now, at the end of all the work, the modifications, the improvements, the midnight blue trimaran, destined for the great capes, emerged once and for all as Manoreva. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.